0: It went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart, and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. <clears throat> So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, behold, you see the man, the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house.
1: Good morning, everybody. Before we turn to the scriptures, let's open in a word of prayer. Lord, uh, what a glorious morning to sing, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, hell, where is your victory? Lord Jesus, you've defeated both. And now death is not a thing to be feared or an end for us, but it's a doorway into glory, into the presence of the Lord, into the next step for us. So thank you for that, that reminder. Um, Father, I want to pray this morning, especially for our sister Joanna um, Sadler, Joanne Sadler and uh, her stay in the hospital. Uh, Lord, she can't be with us to sing and to pray and to praise you. Um, instead she's alone in a hospital bed. But Lord, would you send a special sense of your Holy Spirit to her? I pray that you would meet her in her bed this morning and just stir in her a heart of praise. Lord, Holy Spirit, would you bring to mind for her, our sister this morning, some scripture that would encourage her, something that would sustain her. And Lord, I just pray that she would feel your presence especially clearly just now for no good reason. Other than, Lord, you have decided to give it to her. So have mercy on her. And Lord, as she's waiting in the hospital and, and um, trying to make decisions about her, her future, her knee replacement, or, or where she's going to live and how she's going to stay, uh, Lord, I just pray that uh, we as a church body would remember that this is our sister in Christ, that according to what Paul said in the uh, in, uh, letter to Timothy, that we should take care of her because she is a widow indeed. Her husband has died, her daughter has died, she's very much alone. And so I pray that we would, as a church, Lord, would you put on our hearts a a special burden to care for her, to provide for her. Um, Be with her this morning, we ask. And Lord, we also ask that you'd be with us as we turn to your word. That We would hear what you have to say to us, that it would show us who Jesus Christ is more fully that it would draw us to the beauty of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And Lord, that through the work of the Holy Spirit, applying all of that in our hearts and minds, that you would conform us to the image of Christ. And Lord, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. In uh, 1967, John Lennon received a letter from Stephen Bailey, a student at Quarry Bank School, that was Lennon's alma mater, uh, telling him that their teacher had assigned to them a writing Uh, assignment that they were to analyze Beatles songs, analyze the lyrics, and uh, I think it's probably because of the connection with the alma mater, but Lennon wrote him back, and uh, John Lennon said, all my writing has always been for laughs or fun or whatever you call it. I do it for me first. Whatever people make of it afterwards is valid, but it doesn't necessarily have to correspond to my thoughts about it, okay? That goes for everyone's creations, art, poetry, song, etc. So I remember back in the late 60s, early 70s, analyzing Beatles lyrics was kind of a thing, looking for all the hidden messages and the hidden meanings and that kind of stuff. And one song that I remember was uh, Let It Be. Uh, Paul McCartney wrote Let It Be, and, and the first verse goes, when I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me speaking words of wisdom, let it be. And in my hour of darkness, she's standing right in front of me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. What I was told, the, the, the analysis of that that we had as kids was they were talking about marijuana, which back then was a big deal. It was very taboo. Uh, Mother Mary, marijuana, Mary Jane, that's what it was about and let it be. Just let people smoke it and it's going to be great and everything. That was, that was one of the theories. Uh, if you were a little bit more religious, it was about the Virgin Mary. This was like talking about one of her appearances and she's standing right in front of me and, and Mother Mother Mary is coming and bringing a message to humanity, it's going to be okay, let it be, just, it'll be fine. Um, Kind of fantastical interpretations. The truth is a little bit, it's still interesting, but it's not quite as as exciting as that. Um, Paul McCartney has explained what he, where he got the lyric from. Um, He was, in 1968, he had a dream where his mother came and, and talked to him. Now his mother died when he was 14, and her name was Mary. So it was kind of a personal thing, but, but his mother came to him and said, it'll be okay, let it be. And that dream resonated in, in his mind. He kept thinking, let it be, let it be. And so he began to noodle around with the, the song and, uh, and put it together. Now, what was going on at the Beatles at the time? The Beatles recorded their last album, which was Let It Be, in 1970, and then they broke up. Um, So what was going on is that that wasn't a sudden thing. That had been going on for years. There were struggles in the band to try to, you know, figure out their direction and what they were doing. And there were a lot of reasons that the Beatles broke up. The one that everybody says is Yoko Ono, that John married Yoko and she ruined the band. and, And that's a minor portion. That's part of the problem. But there were a lot of other issues going on at the time. So when Paul writes Let It Be, I think he's got this sense that the wheels are coming off. This is, this is going to end. You know, they're the biggest thing in the world at that time, and, and they could, he could sense the end of it coming. And I say that because the second verse goes like this. And when the brokenhearted people living in the world agree, there will be an answer, let it be. For though they may be parted, there is still a chance they will see. There will be an answer, let it be. So he's got this sense of people parted and things coming to an end and disagreeing, and, but there will be an answer, and so there's hopeful, hopefulness in it. But I think what's really instructive and, and what's kind of interesting is if you put yourself in that situation where the band's coming apart, this is you know, the biggest thing ever, and the struggles and the trials, that first verse really resonates. When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me. So go back and look at some of the analysis. What's, what's going on is, is, is the, the song is about somebody who's in a sense of trouble. When the hour of darkness has come, Mother Mary comes to me. So if Mother Mary is marijuana, The idea is, well, we'll just smoke a little dope and feel better about it. And that's not really satisfying because it doesn't address the trouble that you're in or the hour of darkness. It just numbs the pain. It just kind of dulls the emotions. Now, I want to be careful here because there are people who have genuine anxiety disorder where troubles come and they don't just get a little anxious, they go to a thousand immediately. And they do need some help managing those emotions. The problem is when you get into a time of trouble and the first instinct is to turn to something to numb it. That's just not helpful. It doesn't address the issue. It doesn't address the the trouble you're in or the darkness. Well, what about Mary? What if we turn to the Virgin Mary and pray to her? Now, Catholic theology says Mary has got this special role because she can talk right to her son. She's got a better relationship with her son than we do. And so, if we pray to Mary, then we're talking to somebody who's got inside track to Jesus. Mary can't do anything for you. She's a human being. Um, don't pray to dead people, first of all, but Mary can't do anything about it. She, she doesn't have the power. She's just a human being. So, you're going to a second step instead of appealing to the authority, the power that can do something. So, praying to Mary or, or somebody else like that, that's not going to address your issue. That's at least a step away. Well, what about Paul's mom's advice? It'll be okay, let it be. Well, that's comforting in the middle of that, but you know what, sometimes it's not gonna be okay. Sometimes that's a lie to say it's gonna be okay. Sometimes it's gonna be horrible. And so the question that this raises for us is, when you find yourself in times of trouble, where do you turn? Where do you go, what do you do? Well, when we look at David this morning, we're gonna see him in a time of significant trouble, and then we're gonna look at where does he turn? Where does he head with this? What does he do with this? So just to recap the story, remind us where we're at. David killed Goliath. Saul brought him into his his court and and made him um, his armor bearer. He uh, played the harp to settle Saul when the evil spirit came on him and troubled him. He became a very significant general, had great military victories. Everywhere he went, he won. And so Saul hated him because he was comforting him and because he was winning his battle. So Saul grew afraid and hated him and chased him away, sent people to his house to kill him. And so David fled from that because Michael, his wife, kind of interceded for him. So he flees, he runs away, and he goes to um, Nob. He goes to where the, the tabernacle was. And, and all he's got is what he shows up with. So he walks away with five loaves of bread and, a, and Goliath's sword. Now, as far as David knows at this point, Saul's men are still right behind him. They're still following him. And so he's in this panic. He's, he's just, they've just tried to kill him a number of times. Saul has thrown spears at him. Now he's got troops coming after him. What is David supposed to do? Well, he can't stay in Israel because King Saul may have the whole country worked up. He may have sent out a bounty for him, so he can't stay in Israel. So he's got to flee. Where is he going to go? He goes to Gath. (laughs) This is mind-blowing because he shows up with Goliath's sword. And when he got it, he said, there's none like it on the earth. Nobody's going to mistake that's Goliath's sword you've got. So why would he go of all places to Gath with the sword? It sounds like it's a horrible idea. Well, I think what's going on, we don't know because it doesn't say, it just says that he went. What I'm thinking is he, he went to Gath because he thought, I've got to lose Saul's men who are following me. They dare not follow me into Philistine territory. Because if a, a, a raiding party or a group of, of troops show up heading toward Gath, that's going to start a war. Saul certainly won't go for that. So just in a panic, he runs to Gath. And then he gets there and he's like, uh, <laughs> now what? Well, what you don't see in the story here, when it tells it says that he went to Gath, it says they recognized him. As a matter of fact, I find it funny that the people say, it's, is this not David, the king of the land? He's not the king of the land. He's, he's running from the king of the land. But is this not David, the king of the land? And don't they sing this song to him? So what we don't see in that story is, uh, we pick it up in Psalm 56, which is they arrested David. They, they captured David. And so he didn't just waltz into Achish's court and say, hi, king, I'm here. He was arrested and brought in. So now David is gone, okay, well, I got rid of Saul and his his men, they're gone. Now I have defeated the Philistines a number of times, I've killed their champion, and I'm standing before the king. I have to get out of this. If I run, they will come after me, they'll put a bounty out, somebody might capture me. I have to have a way to get out of this where they just drive me out, they just send me away. And so what he comes up with is he acts insane. He lets spit run down in his beard and he starts scribbling things on the, on the doorposts like it means something. And he figures, hopefully if this works, they'll just look at me and go, he's nuts, get him out of here. And that's exactly what Akish does. He says, don't I have enough crazy people in my kingdom? Why did you bring me one more? Get him out of here. Why didn't they kill him? Don't know for sure. One theory is, Crazy people, back in those days, were seen in a number of different ways. It could be that a spirit was upon him, and you don't want to anger that spirit. It could be that a god is troubling him, and you don't want to anger that god. So they tended not to kill crazy people, just kind of push them away. So he acts insane, and that's exactly what happens, is they push him away, and he goes, and he flees. So that's the story. What do we do with that? Um, what's the great spiritual lesson? When you're in trouble, let spit run down your chin. That's the lesson. That's obviously not what's going on. What we need to do, and we when we look in this, look at this, this story, is ask that question that I ask at the beginning: Where do you turn in times of trouble? David is terrified. He is on the on the run. He has nobody with him. Right? He told he told uh, the uh, priest. I'm supposed to meet my young men at a certain place at a certain time. He hasn't got anybody with him yet. He is completely cut off. So where does David's heart go? What does he do about this? Well, we find out when you look at Psalm 34, because Psalm 34, the, the title of it, and the title is kind of funny in Psalms. If you look in like the ESV, the title of Psalm 34 is Taste and See that the Lord is Good. That's not the title of the song. That is what the editors put over top of it. What's underneath that, it usually says, uh, taste and see the Lord is good, Psalm 34, and then there's some words in all caps. And that's the actual inspired title of the Psalm. Um, there's no edition of the Psalms that don't have those titles in there. Uh, they don't get a verse number. As a matter of fact, if you looked it up in software, it's 34-0, <laughs> it doesn't get a verse number, but it is, as far as I can tell, the inspired text. So Psalm 34, it says, of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. That's tied to this story. Um, time out. Who's the king? The king is Achish. So why are they calling him Abimelech? Um, did they get it wrong? The, the inspired author just got it wrong. No, he's inspired, they don't get it wrong. I think the simplest answer, the boil it down, is take the word Abimelech apart. Ab is Hebrew for father. The I is my. And Melech is king. So what the title Abimelech means is, my father's the king. So when it says that he, what he um, changed his appearance before Abimelech, it may be the title Abimelech, not the name Abimelech. The title is Abimelech, the name is Achish. So I think that's what's going on, because Abimelech comes up in a bunch of different places, a bunch of different ways. So this is what David did. Now, I don't think that David wrote this as he's in Gath, as he's, he's behaving insane and trying to just fight for his life. What happens next at the beginning of the next chapter is he runs to the cave of Adullam and then he begins to form his group. His family joins him. I imagine the young men join him there. And this would be the time when he's secure and he's safe and that's when I think he probably sat down and wrote this, but he's writing it about that event. So let's take a look at Psalm 34. Turn there if you can. We're gonna spend most of our time in that. Um, Psalm 34 is, it breaks out into two portions, verses 1 through 10 is a song of praise. It, it's, it's his exaltation of God, and then the way Charles Spurgeon said it is, is the next 12 verses, 10, 11 through 22, are um, a sermon, because he's talking in the first person, and then he's talking in the second person. So let's take a look at this real quick. Um, Psalm 34 begins, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. So remember, David is our uh, man after God's own heart. And so when a man after God's own heart finds himself in a time of trouble, when darkness surrounds him, where does his mind go? His mind goes to, I will praise the Lord. And, and I don't think, I, I always feel guilty about this stuff, because when I'm in trouble, and, and there's, you know, things, I, that's not necessarily the first thing I'm thinking of. Uh, the first thing I tend to think of is, how do I survive this? It's just kind of a normal, natural reaction is, how do I survive this? I don't think David was necessarily, in that moment, thinking those things. I think once he's delivered, he's on the other side of his deliverance, then he can look back and go, oh my gosh, look at what God did and that stirs praise in his heart. So he's worshiping God. I will bless the Lord at all times, including when I'm running from Saul, including when I'm trying to get away from Achish, when I'm facing my enemies. I will praise the Lord at all times. And that's, that's exactly what he does. He is, he is the God who's going to deliver. And so this is the response to that. This is the response to God's deliverance of, of David. But it's instructive to us to remember this, to remember that when, when things happen and you don't necessarily think of it in the moment, but when you reflect back on it, reflect back and think about God's role in this. Now, David could have said, aren't I clever? Look at what I did. I ran from Saul to a place he couldn't get to me, and then I escaped from that by being be, behaving insane. I am so smart. I, I praise my name at all times because I deliver myself in, in all turns. That's not where his mind goes. He's, he did those things. He planned those things. He thought through those things. And he goes, the only reason it worked is because God. Because they could have arrested him, if somebody recognized him, if they saw Goliath's sword, if somebody saw him when he came across, they could have killed him on the spot. But he recognizes whatever happened, it only worked because God was with me. So that that battles the two poles is we want to say, we are totally in control and totally in charge and everything happens because we make it happen and and we're large and, and we're gonna do it. Or Christian quietism where you just go, I'm not gonna do anything, I'll just let it be. Well, if he let it be, he'd probably be dead. So that you have to fight through those two poles, and so the, the lesson we get in this opening phrase is you gotta do something, but don't forget, the only reason it works is because God's with you. So that, that's our first lesson. So David is, is beginning to live that out. Um, and, and this is not the first time we've heard this lesson. We've heard this before. I don't know if you remember, when Jonathan went out to face the Philistines, he brought his armor bearer and he said to him, and this is in chapter 14, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by few or by many or by one. And that's exactly what the Lord did. He saved David by himself. He, he delivered him. So the next phrase, uh, beginning of verse eight, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Taste and see that the Lord is good. It's providential that we're having communion today, but I don't think this is talking about communion, though communion is not a bad picture of it. it. David says, taste and see that the Lord is good. He doesn't say, look from afar and see that the Lord is good. You should do that. When you see other saints going through trials and see them delivered, you can say, look and I can see the Lord is good. He doesn't say listen and hear that the Lord is good. I can hear that from the other side of the room. He doesn't even say touch and see that the Lord is good because I can do that at arm's length. He says taste and see. Bring the Lord that close. Bring him in so near to you that he's not just before you. He's literally in your face. You have not just experienced his goodness from a distance, you've brought it into your very person. And this is David, who had to flee from Saul, who had to flee from Achish, and he gets out of all of that horrible situation. And He says, taste and see that the Lord is, good. look at what experience I had. And in all of that, the Lord is good. Taste and see that. Young lions suffer want and hunger. But young lions are the power, this is a symbol of power. Those who have authority and power and and strength, they suffer want. But the saints, those who the Lord loves, they lack no good thing, including Gath to flee to and and Achish to be afraid of. That's a good thing because the Lord has ordained it that way. He's put all of those things together. So verse 34, or chapter 34, I'm sorry, Psalm 34, beginning of verse 11 now. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it." Um, We're beginning now David's sermon. Notice his, his address has changed from I will to you guys. So now he's speaking to us. He's preaching a sermon to us. Come, children, and listen to me. That sounds like the book of Proverbs. Here's some wisdom I want to impart to you. Come and listen to me, and I I will teach you the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord. Didn't he just say in verse 4, God delivers us from all our fears? He delivers us from all our fears into the fear of him. Why is it that he's going to teach us to fear the Lord? Didn't he just calm our fears? Well, the fear of the Lord is a very different thing than the fear of Saul or the fear of Achish. The fear of the Lord is something that doesn't push away but draws in. So I I don't know if you remember a couple weeks ago I used an illustration of they found a 14-foot crocodile on a beach in Australia with no head. A 14-foot crocodile is a terrifying thing. The thing that took his head off is even more scary. That's even more terrifying. Fear the thing that takes the head off the 14-foot crocodile. So that's the kind of picture we get here. Saul is terrifying. Saul is under God's control. Achish is terrifying. Achish is under God's control. Don't fear those things. They're controlled. Fear the one who controls them. And so you approach the Lord and you see this person has defeated all all of my phones. All those things that terrified me, he made them gone in an instant. He's he's sovereign over all of those things. He just, they're gone. That's That's even more powerful than the thing that scared me. That's a scary place to be. But what gets even more scary is this immense power who is not frustrated by anything in the universe says, now come to me. He beckons you, come in. And so you enter this king's presence and you can't do anything. You can't offer him anything to win or curry his favor. He, you come because he says, I've asked you to come in. And so you come in with trembling, but it's not a trembling like he's going to change his mind at any moment. It is this powerful thing, this, this person who knows everything about me has welcomed me in. He knows me and yet he's loving me. He's defeated everything that terrified me. And now I approach him, and he's startling, he's amazing, he, he's incredible. And the only assurance I have is he said, come to me. He, he extended the scepter and said, now you come to me. Listen, children, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Be afraid not of Achish, not of Saul. Be afraid of God in that way that draws you closer to him. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? This is quoted by Peter in 1 Peter 3. He applies it to the church. This is brought right forward for us. What he tells us is, now that you have been called by this God, by this, this person who is so powerful, now that you've been drawn in, don't you desire life? Wouldn't you love to have more? Well then, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Didn't he just fool Akish? He pretended to be insane, but he's saying, that's not what delivered me. If you're going to put your trust in those things, you're lost. Don't don't go that way. Instead, head to the Lord. And that's where he goes next. In verse 15, he says, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears. And delivers them out of all of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. So that's why he says, Look, don't rely on those things. The Lord is attracted to, he loves, he delights, he serves, he takes care of the righteous. Now we got to be careful here because when we think righteous, we mean, we think perfectly sinless. That's not Daniel, <laughs> that's not what's going on. There are people who, can't, who are good people. I can think of a person I know, he's not a believer, but I would say this is a good man, this is a good person. There is a temporal righteousness, a person who is actually good in a general kind of sense. And those are the kind of people we're thinking about as we're looking to those who are righteous, those who are doing the right and the good things. They're not what I call eschatologically righteous. In other words, as good as they are, it's not enough. It's not sufficient. But we don't have to say, either you're eschatologically righteous or you just are garbaged altogether. That's not how the Bible speaks of it. That's not how David is speaking of it here. The Lord listens to those who are righteous, those who are doing good in a general sense. He's gonna provide for that eschatological righteousness because you can't do it yourself. So this is who the Lord will turn to. He turns to those who are brokenhearted and those who are crushed in spirit. Have you ever been brokenhearted? When, when the brokenhearted in this world agree, there will be an answer. And it's not Mary and it's not marijuana. What is it? What is the answer? How, how, why is it that God is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit? Why do we have to go through that first? How can we be sure that he's gonna do that? Well, that's coming in the last section Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Wait a minute, God. I'm being good. I'm doing the right thing. Why am I facing afflictions? Why is it that's not fair, God? I did my part. Why am I facing afflictions? David is brutally honest about it. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. It's not transactional, it's not one for one. You're dealing with A person who has infinite wisdom, who has infinite understanding, and so if he brings, allows afflictions to come to the righteous, those who are not doing evil, he has a plan, he has a purpose in it. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of all of them. He keeps his bones, not one is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. David is not surprised at what's coming upon him. He he is righteous. He is a good man. He is doing the right things. The Lord is with him. The spirit departed from Saul and came to David. He's doing the right things. And on his lips, are many are the afflictions of the righteous. So how on earth can we face these struggles, these trials, these difficulties, these afflictions that come to us? How can we stand up to that? How can we be as terrified as David was and yet not abandon the Lord and say, well, it didn't work. I've done all of this and he abandoned me. The assurance comes in the next verse. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Harm will come to you, but it won't overwhelm you. It won't destroy you. Okay. How can I know that? How can I be assured of that? Because that verse is picked up, and in John, he explains what's going on. It's about Jesus when he was crucified, John chapter 19. Since it was the day of Jesus' hanging on the cross, since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs may be broken, that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him, but when they came to Jesus, they saw he was already dead and they did not break his legs. So as you're hanging on the cross, the the battle is to inhale. And so you would push yourself up on your feet with searing pain because of a, a nail shoved through them and get the weight off your esophagus so you could take a breath and then you'd relax. And now the searing pain is in your hands pulling you apart and stretching the muscles. So to kill somebody fast on a, a crucifixion would take days and days to kill someone. To kill them quicker you break their legs and then they can't stand up, they can't push themselves up and they'll suffocate and die quicker. So that was what they asked, please break their legs so we can get these bodies off the cross and in the ground because we can't have dead bodies hanging up on the Sabbath. But when they get to Jesus, he's already dead. And then then John goes on and he says, for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him who they have pierced. So why is it that Jesus' bones not being broken is a comfort for me? Why is that something that would help me through these times of trouble, through this darkness that surrounds me? Well, one answer that's often given is it's a fulfillment of prophecy. This was written about Jesus and David lived a thousand years before Jesus. So you can trust the scriptures and that's not bad. That's a good answer, but there's more to it than that. I think the other part of that answer is even richer and even better. Jesus did what David did. He fled his own countrymen. They were out to get him. He fled from them uh, he didn't flee from them, he, he let them arrest him, and then he was handed over to the Gentiles. He did what David did, he was, he was rejected by Israel, he went to his enemies. And, and David feared that he might be killed. Jesus knew he would be killed, and he went to them anyway. So what does the bones not being broken help us here with? Is they came to break his bones so that they could kill him. But Jesus earlier in John chapter 10 said, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it for me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my father. So what we get is David is in this trial where he's, his countrymen are chasing him, the enemies are against him. What's he gonna do? With Jesus, he was never overcome by his enemies. He never had a fear of the Jews. He walked placidly through them, and taught them, and rebuked them, and and all of those things. And then when he was arrested and he was handed over to the Gentiles, Pilate says, look, don't you know I have the authority to release you or I have the authority to kill you? And Jesus again looks at him and says, he doesn't pretend to be mad. He looks at him and he says, you'd have no authority if it wasn't for my father. So here's where this don't break, his bones not being broken comes in for us. The trial that Jesus faced, the overwhelming opposition to him, he was completely in control of. He didn't die because they crucified him. He died because he laid down his life. He he died because it was time, because the father said, now is the time. He endured on the cross, not just the physical pain, which was significant. On the cross, he endured the pains of hell for us. The father turned away from him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He bore our burden on the cross. And so when it was time to die, he died, not because of the crucifixion, not because of broken legs, not because of asphyxiation, but because it is finished. I have paid the full penalty. It's over. It's done. I will now die. I will take everything that the world and Satan have to throw at me. I will take it all upon myself and I'll die. And he was completely in control of the whole thing. So when you're going through that struggle, when you're in that time of darkness, when you're in in times of trouble, you can look to Christ and say, not one of his bones were broken. In the midst of a worse situation than I could ever fear, he was totally in control. It was time to die because he decided it was time to die. It was time to raise up from the grave because he decided it was time to raise from the grave. For this reason, my father loves me because I lay down my life and that I may take it up again. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. For this reason, you can trust Jesus in the middle of those struggles, in the middle of those difficulties because Jesus has the authority to lay your life down but he has the authority and the love and the purpose to take your life up again. So this is how, this is where the, the man of, after God's own heart goes when he faces adversity and struggle and difficulty. It's not stoicism and I'm just going to face, it. I'm going to let it be, watch this. It is act, think, do something, but never trust that that's sufficient. Call out to the Lord. Because God has demonstrated in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that he is over all of your foes. There is no adversity, no adversary who can stand against you. So though the situation may be difficult, may be horrible, and it may not get any better, that's it, that's all it can do. It can't keep you from the love of your Savior. That, that is easy to say when you're suffering, especially physical pain, or emotional loss, or abandonment, or isolation, it's really hard to do. That's why I brought up the fact that David probably wrote this in the cave, is he needed to get through the the issue. He needed to get through to the other side of that before he could look back and go, God did this. God made all of this come to pass. Not a bone is broken. I escaped not because I'm clever, but because God has done that for me in the middle of it in, the, in the, the, the center of the crucible, in the struggle, the best you can do is call out to God. And, and don't think you have to have it all figured out, I know exactly what he's doing, you won't. But you can look to the cross and go, Jesus walked through this same kind of thing. He faced every adversary, everything that he, that he had to, and he did it on purpose, he did it with control, he didn't have his legs broken that he might stand up again. That at the resurrection, he would just walk out of the tomb. And that's where your hope is, that's where you go. So, sorry David, you don't get to be Jesus in this, in this story. <laughs> but he is an illustration to us of what a godly person should be doing. He, he, and that's why his psalm is inspired and written down for us, is so that we can look to that. And that's why it connects to Jesus' resurrection, or death and resurrection, is because that's where ultimately the hope is. That's the promise we need to cling to that's where it goes. so where do you find what do you do when you find yourself in times of trouble? Do you deaden the pain? take a pill doom scroll on, on Twitter? do you smoke some marijuana? whatever it is? What do you do with the pain? Well the pain came because God allowed it to come and so We're gonna have to deal with it somehow. We've gotta find some way to wrestle through it. It's not a good spot to be in, but what God's given us is he said, look to my son. I love him because I've given him authority. He can lay his life down and he can take your life back up as well. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful that David left us this Psalm, that you inspired him. Holy Spirit, that you caused these words to be written from David's perspective and David's place and time, in a way that would speak through the ages. That it wasn't just about um, how to get in and out of gaff, which wouldn't apply to any of us, but Lord, it is how to deal with adversity. And so we're grateful that these words come to us, that David has left them for us, that he's issued them to, or spoken them to us. And, and Lord, I pray that Holy Spirit, you would sink them into our hearts and minds Lord, I know that when I face difficulty and opposition and struggle and trial, my first reaction is not to pray, it's not to, to think how good you are, but just to figure out how to survive. And Lord, would you buttress that and back that up with more of a reliance on you, more of an acknowledgement of who you are, so that when I'm re- delivered on the other side of it, I will offer you praise. And would you do that for all of us? I'm sure we all struggle in that similar kind of way. Uh, Lord, show yourself to be good to us.